Hello and welcome to the first impromptu episode of Ross Reads. <laughs> I'm Laura and the man you can hear giggling is Ross. Hello. Um, and what book are you reading us today, Ross? I'm reading a wonderful book called Folklore and Legends of Dartmoor uh, by William Crossing. Um, and basically it's a, it's a collection of articles that William Crossing wrote. Bear in mind, this was in the 19th century, so these are quite old. But um, we, I was just reading this chapter um, called Giants and Strong Men, which tells the story of, well, kind of a, a, like a, accounts the different kind of giant legends of Dartmoor. Um, and I was reading it and thought, this man is very funny. <laughs> and uh, I was reading it out loud to Laura. And what did you think? I thought it was very funny and very entertaining. And I thought that perhaps the good people of the internet might also enjoy it. So I stopped him where he was <laughs> and said, wait, while I quickly get my phone and we're going to record you doing this and see whether the internet also enjoys. If you listen very carefully, you might also hear our cat purring because uh, he's curled up on my boobs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And with that, over to Ross. All right. You ready? Born ready. Take a deep breath. <sighs> Dimmed by the years, and as elusive as the will o' the wisp, certain stories, or fragments of stories, are found in various parts of Dartmoor that show us that there was a time when people believed that this wild hill country had its Rifaim and its sons of Anak. Little that is connected can be gathered, and that little is fast disappearing. But less than a hundred years ago, the Dartmoor folk well remembered how their elders used to speak of giants that formerly held possession of the moor. It was at a time, they said, when the tors shot up from the midst of great forests, a statement which we shall not be the least inclined to doubt. So Isn't this... that an amazing image? Yeah, yeah. Tor... I mean, when you look at the moors, it's just... Fields and fields of grass and sheep. Robbery. But imagine forests. But <laughs> instead. Imagine that. Imagine. Back in ancient Albion. Uh, yeah. That's which, which, as we know, was... Well, we're going to get into it. <laughs> to this race of men, they attributed the erection of the stone monuments. <laughs> what was funny, baby? Stone monuments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of the moor, the dolmen, the columnar circle, and the menhir. This was their belief, and as those who erected them <laughs> were men of huge size and great strength, they saw nothing very wonderful in the accomplishment of work that would have presented almost insuperable difficulties to men of ordinary size. It was an easy way of accounting for that which they did not understand. Stories connecting the giants with ancient stone monuments are found in other parts. We know that in the 12th century, Stonehenge was called the Giant's Dance. We first hear of giants in connection with the hill country of the West. Uh, I've, I've, I've messed up the sentence. Let me start again. <laughs> Normally, in an episode of Ross Reads, I cut these bits out. <laughs> the first that we hear of giants in connection with the hill country of the West is in the legend of Tamara, which is noticed in the chapter on the law of the Dartmoor streams, more to come later. But it tells us nothing about them, 
we merely learn that the beautiful maiden who was transformed into the river Tamar was a daughter of that mighty race. Of story concerning them, there is none. But in later times, though yet removed from us by nearly eight centuries, or for us, nine, <laughs> yeah. something more definite is told us. Not in legend, but in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of Britain. Good old Jeff. Good old Jeff. <laughs> uh, a name that has come up a lot recently in our historical adventures. Yes. Pseudo-legend. Well, no, all legend. Fortunately, Geoffrey, notwithstanding he was Bishop of St. Asaph, is not to be relied upon. His writings will not bear the light of modern criticism, and we must therefore receive his statements with much caution. But what he tells us is nevertheless interesting, and probably this was the chief end he had in view when writing his marvellous account of our country. Speaking of Britain, he says, The island was then called Albion, and was inhabited by none but a few giants. And then he goes on to tell us about some of those who belonged to the West Country. Among these was one detestable monter named Gomagot, in stature twelve cubits, and of such prodigious strength that at one shake he pulled up an oak as if it had been a hazel wand. This formidable adversary, having been defeated and captured in an encounter with the Britons, in which twenty of his companions were slain, was brought out to wrestle with Coroneus, the brave commander who, according to the fable, accompanied Brutus the Trojan to these shores about the year 1200 BC. Coroneus proved victorious, for, lifting the giant on his shoulders, he ran with him to a high rock and hurled him into the sea. He must have been hen. He must have been. I'm trying to like imagine that. Like, uh, I'm trying to imagine like a a small man carrying a massive giant. That seems unlikely. Seems but... so unbelievable. But it must be true because Geoffrey of Monmouth said so. You know, Geoffrey of Monmouth. He <laughs> renowned for his historicity. <laughs> the scene of the encounter was the hill upon which the Plymouth Citadel now stands. And Geoffrey states that the spot from which the giant was thrown was in his day known as Gomagot's Leap. And to be honest, surely it should be known as Gomagot's Throw rather than Leap. Well, take it out with Geoffrey of Monmouth, babes. Yeah, I've got to go. I've got to go. <laughs> Give me a time machine, Geoffrey. Oi, Jeff. Oi, Jeff. Oi. <laughs> We've got words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this guy's more my guy. Tristram Risden of Winscott in North Devon was a very different kind of historian from Geoffrey, writing some 500 years after him, refers to these men of a former age. In his account of Lydford, he speaks of it as being exposed to the Dartmoor storms and says it was more fitted for the giant-like Albionists such as are reported to be the first inhabitants of this island than for people of greater civilization. I just realised I'm missing an opportunity to do a Dan Carl in his hardcore history style quote. <laughs> the giant-like Albionists such as are reported to be the first inhabitants of this island. End quote. <laughs> what you are listening to, folks, is um, creation as it's happening. Uh, absolutely. Who <laughs> <laughs> we kidding? No one's listening to this. <laughs> it's for our benefit. We'll enjoy listening back to it. Gomagots was thrown from the rock where the plim pours its waters into the sea, and it therefore seems not unfitting that we should find some traces of giants on that river. These are encountered before it has gone far upon its way. 
from its brink rises Giant's Hill, and nearby is a cairn that bears the name of the Giant's Basin. Whether this part of Dartmoor in which the Plym has its source ever was the haunt of Giants I cannot at present say, but I shall be quite prepared to affirm that it was so when I am satisfied that Coronaeus wrestled with Gymagot and beat him. When that is established, it will be easy to prove that his brother Giants prepared porridge in the basin on the Plym, Obviously. and stirred it with the menhirs that are often seen nearby. Note menhir, 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 it means a standing stone. We know this because we googled it. We had to google it. <laughs> we shall also be quite ready to show that what has been supposed to be the basements of circular-shaped huts are really petrified rings thrown there by, quote, the first inhabitants of this island, end quote. <laughs> he used them as coits. Coit. End coit. <laughs> but there will always be doubting Thomases, no matter what proofs are brought forward. And I am fully aware that I should be unable to get all to see with me. But others there are who will be ready to believe that giants once inhabited Dartmoor. We're ten minutes in, that's two pages. Bloody hell. <laughs> How many pages long is this chapter? Uh, six. <sighs> we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Provided that certain matters were first rendered indisputable. For instance, let us make our way to the steep hill that forms one side of the romantic gorge through which the West Ockman forces its way upon towards the beautiful island of rocks. There we shall find a tor, a pile of grey granite, which is known as the Slipper Stones. The observer sees at once the reason why it bears such a name. The topmost rock presents a rude resemblance to a huge slipper, and local story tells us that, it su- that such it once was. For it, is now, for it is only for us to be satisfied of the truth of this report, and the question of the existence of giants on the moor is conclusively proved. For nobody but a giant could have required such a slipper. It is simply a question of demonstrating that two and two make five, which is easy enough if it can first be shown that two is equal to three when required to be so. You can't fault his logic. No, absolutely. And you can't fault this cat which is currently climbing all over us. (laughs) Let us pass along this lofty ridge that rises above the Ockmont. There is much to delight us and we shall feel amply rewarded for our pains, even though the traces of the giants be but slight. But if our faith in the matter of the slipper be not weak, we shall probably regard the evidence we find here as satisfactory. On the slope of Corn Ridge, we come upon two rocks which together are known as Branscombe's Loaf and Cheese. Whatever the bishop of that name may have had to do with these objects, it is quite certain that if ever they were what na- their names would lead us to suppose, none but a giant, and that a very big one, could have required them. I have to say, there must have been a bishop called Branscombe at the time that this was written, because that's a reference that I have no clue mm. to to what they're re- referencing. It's an antiquated reference, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we're about to go into antiquity here. Well... For the for the purposes of this reading, I'm going to assume that there was a bishop called Branscombe. Mm-hmm. That seems like a fair, a fair. Uh, anyway, you, as you are. Do you know Bran is uh, an old Celtic word for crow? Really, interesting. And now you think of Game of Thrones. Yeah, is it not short for Brandon though? No. 
in Game of Thrones it is. Is it? Yeah. Oh. This the <laughs> Ned Stark's sons, Brandon, <laughs> Jaden. Jaden. <laughs> we continued. Anyway. Where's my place? <laughs> anyway, antiquity. It will be well, perhaps. <laughs> For the visitor not to allow his antiquarian instincts to impel him to make too strict an inquiry into the matter, or he may learn that the first word has nothing whatever to do with bread, but, without the A, is simply a Celtic word, meaning a lump or excrescence. Excretence? Excrescence. I'm going to need... Hey, Google, what does excrescence mean? Oh, no. no. <laughs> oh, fuck. No! No! Not excretion! Google, shut up! <laughs> the process of eliminating or expelling waste matter. No! No! <laughs> no! 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 Google! Shut up! <laughs> we had too much fun this morning. <laughs> we are not out for antiquarian discoveries. We are in quest of evidence concerning giants, and having discovered it, let us be content. On Marden Down, near Morton Hampstead, is a despoiled tumulus called the Giant's Grave. We can learn little or nothing about the giant, but the name shows us that there was a time when this huge race was spoken of in the locality. At a little distance from the tumulus is a short pillar sometimes referred to as the Maximajor Stone, and by some said to represent the giant's staff. If this giant approached in size the one who could sit down before a loaf and cheese, as are to be seen on Corn Ridge, we should be much more inclined to believe that the pillar represented his toothpick. The notion that men of extraordinary size once inhabited the country was, of course, a survival of a belief of great antiquity, and the occasional arising of an Og or a Goliath was probably regarded as confirmatory of the truth of the stories that had been handed down. Additional proof was no doubt supposed to be afforded by the discoveries of bones of extinct animals which were mistaken for those of men. A few ribs or teeth of the Megatherium, for instance, would be sufficient to convince men of an earlier period that the world was once peopled by beings of gigantic proportions. What's a Megatherium? I think that's one of those ones that, like, one of those prehistoric animals that's sort of like a, like a massive tapir. Oh, wow. Worth and Dartmoor? Um, yeah. I mean, Dartmoor at the time was probably, I mean, the British Isles only 7,000, 10,000, whatever years ago, were connected to mainland Europe. So, you know. Yeah. These bad boys walked all over the place. Plus the climate at that time would have been dramatic, like radically different. Mm. Um, Yeah. Anyway, we have digressed. We have digressed. Continue. Uh, Risden speaks of the, quote, skeleton of a huge body, (laughs) end quote, that was to be seen in his day at Buckfastley. What is meant is not quite clear, but the skeleton was such, he says, quote, whereby may be conceived that bigness once it bore, whose ruins may move the beholders both to wonder and pity, end quote. <laughs> if you haven't listened to Hardcore Histories with Dan Carlin, please go and listen to it so that you understand what he's doing. The giants were usually <laughs> possessed of great strength, which, of course, is one would naturally suppose. <laughs> Among the feats performed by them, those of one have come down to us whose doings it is a pleasure to record. We refer to Ordolf, 
son of Ordgar, Earl of Devon, who in the 10th century founded Tavistock Abbey. That he was a good giant will be at once apparent when it is stated that it was his custom to rise in the night and go out of doors to say his prayers. Probably like the eugenists of the present day, ooh, ew. <laughs> mm, definitely written two centuries ago. What did it say? The eugenists. Oh dear. Is that what? Well, is that? Is As in eugenics? Well, for your, well, it probably means something. It probably doesn't mean eugenics. This is before eugenics, right? So this is probably you uh, pre. Anyway, we'll Google it later and fill you in. Yeah, don't ask Google what eugenics is. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Ordolf evidently thought it was impossible to have too much of it and desired to set a good example. This has been followed by the eugenists, we are referring to that part of his practice concerning fresh air, which affords a further proof of the truth of the saying that there is nothing new under the sun. Shall I ask Google what a eugenist no, is? No. Because it's, I'm not asking what eugenics is. Yeah, but it just it misheard you when you said exc- excrescence, so... <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Google, what's this antiquated old word that sounds like a modern word that is rude or bad? Uh, Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Fine. Maybe. Well, we'll let you know later. (laughs) Probably no greater man has ever visited Dartmoor Dartmoor, than this giant who was given to nocturnal devotions. Nocturnal devotions. That's the name of my... You know, and it is also the name of his sex tape. That is also likely (laughs) that no one was ever known who is well so well fitted for rambling over it. Anyone who has walked a few miles over its hills will be aware that certain impediments are constantly encountered. Here, a feather bed, as it is termed, a depression in the granite filled with slush, and covered with. (laughs) And covered with inviting-looking bright green moss. And there is stream with no apparent means of crossing it. <laughs> so Depression in the granite filled with <laughs> I don't get why this one's got you, but I, I enjoy it. To order presented no such obstacles. We learn something about him from William of Malmesbury, who wrote in the 12th century, and among other matters, that this saintly giant was able to stride over a river 10 feet wide. Goodness. Such an accomplishment would enable a man to treat as very light matters the impediments he would meet with on Dartmoor. That he was very strong is evident from the fact of his breaking down the gates and wall, part of the wall of Exeter. And it seems rather unfair that he should not have received the credit due to him for having performed such a feat. Some there were who willingly, some there were who fully appreciated the Samson-like act. I just a point of matter. This this Victorian era writing um, is devoid of commas, so it's quite difficult to work out. Bit of a mouthful. Bit, it's difficult to work out where the stresses are in each sentence, but we'll get in there. What you're hearing is Ross reading this for the very first time. This bit, yeah, we now we're, onto we're new, now onto new bits. Like we didn't realize they were going to start talking about eugenists. Yeah, this is all new. <laughs> we did two page, two three pages, three pages, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, some there were who fully appreciated this Samson-like act and were loud in expressing their admiration of it. But the king, in whose presence it took place, gave it as his opinion that it must have been done by the power of Satan. 
Satan, not Satan. Not Satan. No. The the type of vegetarian bacon. (laughs) Now, if Ordolf had been a wicked man, such a remark might not be deemed surprising. But to suppose that the evil one would be likely to help a man who was in the habit of leaving his warm bed in the middle of the night and going out into the cold to pray is altogether absurd. It is only fair to state that it has been said that the king merely pretended to believe that Satan had a part in the matter, desiring to make light of the deed. Several writers, besides William of Malmesbury, have left us something about Ordolf. Risdon calls him, quote, that great Duke of Devonshire, end quote, unquote, end quote, I'm thinking like HTML, which states that his coat armour was formerly to be seen in Warrington Church. That was a very, very niche, nerdy joke. Which was one of the possessions the Duke gave to Tavistock Abbey. Brown Willis, in speaking of that abbey, just a point, point of note, Brown Willis, that is very close to the name of a of the highest peak in Cornwall, which is Brown Willie. What? Yep. Brown Willie? Brown Willie. Brown as in the colour brown? Yeah, look it up. Brown, I'm not Googling Brown Willie. <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you've got safe search on. <laughs> or, or incognito mode, depending on what you want to receive. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Brown Willis, in speaking of that abbey, says that when he wrote the sepulchral effigy of Ordolf, sepulchral effigy, that's great, in which he states was of great length, lay under an arch in the north side of the cloisters of the Abbey Church. The upper portion of this archway may still be seen in the graveyard at Tavistock. The lower portion is now beneath the level of the surrounding ground. The Reverend E.A. Bray, writing in the early part of the last century, so three centuries ago, two centuries, three centuries ago for us, states that it was then related in excavating for some foundations on the site of the Abbey, the workmen discovered a large stone coffin containing bones. When Mr. Bray wrote, these bones were preserved in the church and were called the giant's bones. How giant are we talking? That's another title of my next date, rather. Oh, God. They consisted of two thigh bones. (laughs) One being 21 inches in length and the other 19 and a half inches. As we can hardly suppose that Ordolf had one leg longer than the other, it would seem that one of these bones belonged to somebody else. We believe that a former sexton used to show them as the bones of the Saxon giant and his wife. If he was right in this, it proves that Ordolf possessed a good sense of proportion and was desirous of showing that, while looking down upon everybody around him, he would at least choose for a consort one who wasn't on level with himself. But, while we always find the giants possessed of great strength, we also have instances of strong men who are not giants. Of these, perhaps the foremost was Ephraim of Widdicombe in the Moor. He was regarded by his associates as, quote, fine strapping fella. Fucking hell, babes. End quote. <laughs> Certainly. But was not bigger than many others in the locality. I was not prepared for you to start doing accents. <laughs> it's written out here with apostrophes and everything. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, it is. <laughs> his prowess showed himself chiefly in wonderful leaps and feats of strength. While he could not stride like Ordolf across a ten-feet stream, he found no difficulty in jumping across one of much greater width. And if he could not batter down the gates of a city, he was able, at all events, to unhang with one hand any field gate in the neighbourhood and carry a couple of them with about, about with ease. If it was required to move a granite boulder and no horse and sledge were available, 
Ephraim was always ready to undertake the task. I realise I'm saying Ephraim like is a Hebrew uh, character from the Bible, but Ephraim is probably how it's pronounced. I mean, we the the road down the road is Mount Ephraim. Ephraim. Let's go with Ephraim. How, how's it spelled? Exactly the same. Okay, so it's Ephraim. Let's go with Ephraim. Okay. Ephraim was always ready to undertake the task, being able to roll a huge boulder with as little effort as most men would use to trundle the cartwheel. To the miller of Cockington... <laughs> Pause for laughter. <laughs> he was often of the greatest service, for not only was he able to unload his sacks of corn with expedition, <laughs> no one told me there'd be so much innuendo. I don't think there is. I think we're just a bit gutter brained. Yeah. When it was required to dress the millstones, Ephraim could lift them in a trice and so render the fixing of ropes and blocks unnecessary. It was wonderful to see how he could toss about a crowbar. <laughs> what the hell? Or a bar wonderful. iron. It was wonderful to see. <laughs> so a joy to behold. <laughs> or a bar iron, as the Dartmoor peasant calls it. It appeared little more than a straw in his hands. And not a few <laughs> there who ever believed that he could have bent it easily had he chosen. <laughs> this is sordid. <laughs> Gonna have to put an explicit tag on this. <laughs> One day, certain feats of strength. Well, we're not too far, by the way. We're about a page and a bit away. I'm so sure. I hope you're whoever's enjoying Whoever's listening, if there is anybody <laughs> listening, we're nearly there, guys. Nearly there. <laughs> One day, certain feats of strength happened to be the theme of conversation among a little knot of villagers who were gathered on Widdicombe Green. One said he could do this, and another said he could do that and all seemed to be very confident of their ability to accomplish various things that nobody else would venture to undertake. In the midst That of... sounds like... <laughs> sounds like a bunch of school kids, doesn't sounds it? Sounds like straight white men. It does. <laughs> <laughs> no offence. The straight ma- white man continues. <laughs> In the midst of their talk, Ephraim chanced... <laughs> Ephraim chanced to approach, and immediately the conversation took a fresh turn. Those who had before been boasting of their performances the most loudly now appearing the most anxious to say nothing about them. <laughs> but Ephraim had overheard enough to acquaint him with the nature of their remarks and, confident of his own powers, told them flatly that there was not one among them who could carry so heavy a weight as he could. <laughs> there was a dead silence, for all were well aware that Ephraim was far more than their match. But this was at length broken by one who conceived the idea of getting out of the corner in which Ephraim had pinned them by challenging the strong man to do something that he deemed impossible. He offered to wager that Ephraim could not carry a sack of corn upon his back from Widdicombe to Post Bridge, a distance of five miles, without putting it down and resting. I mean, how heavy is like a bag of corn? We're about to find out. To carry a sack of corn five miles on a good level road would be a feat requiring much strength and endurance. There you go. Okay, but how... That, that, that didn't answer my question. Uh, sack of corn. 20k? 20k of guys. Because, like, when people train to join elite military forces, like the Marines, they have to carry really, really, really heavy rucksacks across country. Ephraim could really do with watching one of those Join the Army adverts. I know, right? Or one of those, there was a documentary series that my brother watched about joining the Marines where, oh, yeah. yeah, where they were, like, running, doing cross-country running, carrying, like, 50 kg on their back. That might not be true. I might be, might be half me- half remembering or completely misremembering. That's anyway, yeah, we've digressed again. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
To carry, I'll just read this a little bit again to, to go into the sentence. To carry a sack of corn five miles on a good level road would be a feat requiring much strength and endurance. But when the nature of the ground between the places named comes to be considered, it appears to be a task that even the strongest man could not achieve. But Ephraim believed himself to be equal to it and without any hesitation accepted the wager. I bet Bear Grylls could do it. <laughs> I'm going to have to put this sack down to rest. <laughs> I'm so thirsty. Let I'm going to drink. <laughs> just... I'm gonna have to... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the first part of the way lay over the huge ridge of Hamilton and it was desperate work to reach the summit. But this was accomplished in time and Ephraim then had the descent of Gore Hill before him. This was easy enough for a man of such wondrous powers, and it was not long before he crossed the Blackerton Brook. Then another hill had to be climbed, which, though not presenting such difficulties as Hamilton, nevertheless proved sufficiently formidable. Ephraim passed slowly up, and then the spirits of those who had become his backers ran high. Do you think Mount Ephraim, the road down the road from our road, is named after this chap? I mean, we are in the southeast of England rather than the southwest. It would be surprising if there's any, any, like that'd be a that'd be a that'd be a bit of a surely Mount Ephraim's named after the Bible character, right? Oh, yeah, I didn't even realize there was one. Anyway, carry on. Um, oh, I couldn't tell you. Ephraim's not one of the OG Bible characters. I can't remember. What, anyway, um. <laughs> OG Bible characters. Surely that's just God. <laughs> OG, original God. Um, <laughs> Ephraim passed slowly up, and then the spirits of those who had become his backers ran high. There was only one short hill to be ascended now, and then Ephraim would have a practically level run in. It was reached. It is only a pinch, said his backers. Ephraim will do it. But the strong man did not do it. Dun, dun, dun. He tried it. Like the good staunch fellow that he was, but it proved too much for him. He was compelled to cast the sack from his shoulders, and the spot has ever since been known by the name of Ephraim's Pinch. <coughs> Ephraim's Pinch? Yeah. Pinch? I don't know. Mr. Edward Coker, formerly of Hexworthy, told me this story many years ago, but as a true Dartmoor man, he was careful to point out that the, although Ephraim had lost his bet, he nevertheless succeeded in accomplishing a feat of which many a man might be proud. Another more than Samson, of whom I have heard old speak people speak, once lived in the parish of South Brent. His feats were somewhat similar to those related of Ephraim, and he also possessed wonderful agility. Having once been challenged to leap over the turnpike gate at Brent Bridge, which was a particularly high one, he not only proved himself equal to the task, but performed it with a reaping hook in each hand. I'm imagining like a eight foot gate yeah let's go with that rather than like three foot and here's a surprise mm. that's where the chapter ends what yeah that's it i and it's got like some asterisks which i think might mean that the rest of the article has been lost or something i can't think of any reason why it would just end there that doesn't seem like a like a good end to an article does it no Anyway. Well, the next one's called The Dragon and the Serpent. That looks like it'd be quite fun. So if anybody actually listens to this and there is any, you know, calling for it, perhaps when we read The Dragon and the Serpent, <laughs> we'll also record that. <laughs> Tell us your thoughts about the giants, Russells. My thoughts? 
Um, quite interesting. I um, I recently read a book called Storyland by Amy Jeffs, which I think is a very good book. It was mm. released this year, uh, which retells the whole kind of history of the of well, not history, the kind of the mythological pseudo history. Um, not even pseudo; it's completely false. But anyway, the mythological history of the British Isles, um, which is a, fascinating, which is really fascinating, um, and um, it it shows that giants were very key and important to. Um, to to the people of the first century, first millennium, um, in the in in Britain, um, these particular stories I quite like because I think they're quite quaint. I think that they have like you know I remember like when I was a kid walking around, you know walking around like doing walks with the family or uh, even just playing at school and seeing like things around me that I, that I would then try to explain through some kind of mythological thing. Like mm. I remember seeing like a tree which had a knot in it that to me looked like the foot of a dinosaur. Wow. And I thought like, oh, clearly there's a, a dinosaur walked on this tree. Obviously, like, you know, a tree mm. is not, uh, uh, you know. How old were you at this point? Like five. Yeah. Um, I thought he was going to say 15. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, the point <laughs> is that I, I can see how these stories get built just by observing the kind of natural shapes of the landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've taken a rough... Like those rocks that were called the, the loaf and cheese. The loaf and cheese. Which is fab. And the Fantastic. Slipper. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts, Laura? I really enjoyed it. I think it's really interesting. I think there's been a resurgence in recent years of people trying to kind of reclaim a... Like a shared cultural mythology... Yeah. In the UK, I feel like when I was a kid, it definitely wasn't so prevalent. Whereas now, I feel like people are taking way more of an interest. Like you say, there was that book that came out that yeah. you've read. Um, yeah, I think it's really, really cool. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, we're not really taught, like, the mythological history of Britain in school. Yeah, because it's myth. It is myth. But... It, ha- it, it, you know, it holds no you know factual significance in in of course not but then it also like i guess uh it holds no relevance to us today in that um i guess the very fact that it's not really uh, taught taught in schools as like a, a mythological history kind of says that it's not important for us as you know no one really ca- like cares or knows about what people in the middle ages thought was the history of britain or um you know, at least kind of told themselves about the history of Britain. Like, you know, the idea of Brutus sailing from Troy and mm. landing on the shores. You know, but we're, we don't... Like, we, we don't, know about that. We but know only about because that. we're massive history and mythology nerds yeah. who have actively sought out that information. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a moment, though, that people ought to know it because... Like, it doesn't matter. But it is quite interesting and curious. I think that it's... It, it gives a kind of a, a, a colour to... Like, yeah. when you think of the past, it's so often very... It seems black and white. But when you consider things like this, I feel like it's filling in the colour. Mm. It's giving everything much more kind of texture and depth. Gosh, yeah. this has got profound. It has got quite profound, hasn't it? Um, anyway. If anyone's listening, I hope you enjoyed that. Let us know if you would like us to read Dragons and Serpents. Absolutely. By we, I do mean Ross. 
and I will just be to one side interjecting and making rude jokes. <laughs> You're very good at that. And yeah, like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs>